As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You ever think about quitting? It's the combat of life, hammering the snot out of you. Well, stand by, dig in deep, and get ready to get fired up with us. Welcome to the Team Never Quit Podcast, the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford, here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. Our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life, to teach you the values of working your ass off, and to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup, and let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable by sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative you insurgency up, in their man. lives. You fire me up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Marcus, heaviest day in American history. 9-11. For sure. Right? Wizard? Pearl Harbor. Oh, I wasn't around for Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Oh, you can get perspective. Yeah, you can do... I'd, I'd have to go, wow, man. I don't know. Uh, which impacted the national consciousness more? Probably 9-11. We've been at war for 16 years. That's my point. Other than that... The shot at the North Bridge that that lasted quite Pearl a while. Harbor, we got a chance to fight. You know, they, once they, I honestly they don't were... know. I think we'd have to ask someone who lived through both events, which was more shocking: Pearl Harbor, nine eleven. The JFK I, assassination was was heavy, right? Yeah, but there was no warfare that came out of it. That's my point, man. This date, September eleventh, two thousand one, has launched the the longest engagement in United States history in a fight that still has no end in sight to it. Unfortunately not. So the power and the magnitude of that well, day. Look at it like that. It's metastasizing here. It, it's here. Heck just today. Yeah, I mean, some knucklehead in the New York city subway system decides he's going to wants to blow people up with a pipe on. Now, thank God he blew himself up, which is awesome. Yeah. There, I love there's that kind of karma. The, the idea is that there's bad people in this world trying to do our country harm. 
on a regular reoccurring basis. And the threat now, because of the way society is and the way the way the laws are, right, that makes it available to, for people to wage war in a bunch of different ways nowadays. And I think, you know, what's so what's so remarkable is about is about our guest coming on about Bernie is his perspective from growing the way he grew up to the becoming the police commissioner of New York City on 9/11 to working overseas in a fight against terrorism in Iraq to being incarcerated himself and and now trying to renovate the judicial system I mean that's this guy bro I mean, he was one of the generals in that war zone. That was a battle. Once, once they shut that city down, it was contained in there. It was a no one knew what was going on. And do you remember that day? Of course, on my way to work. Well, we were at the at the house at the kind of as a school. Was yeah, where I, I was in uh, SCV school. Yeah, they recalled us. <laughs> and then while we were sitting in there, and the master chief was saying there was pretty good. You could hear the hustle, and, and everybody was fired. You know, the master chief, everybody was fired. I'm like, hey boys, get ready, we're going. Yeah, and then. Uh, we were watching the TVs in the in the jock, all the TVs on the thing, and I had that, and I <laughs> that was crazy, man. That second plane came around, smacked it, and Warren leaned his head, and he's like, "We're going, <laughs> it's on, it's on." Yeah, I was doing a dive soup course Everything in Sandog, and I remember I got a phone call at like six something, and like, "Hey, Rut, turn on the TV, man." I was like, and we didn't have a TV at the time. <laughs> And uh, it's a funny story to it, but I'm not going to tell here because it's obviously a pretty somber moment. So we ended up taking me five hours to get into, cl- into class, and we didn't stop training, man. We we literally, you know, at a break for 10 minutes, we'd flip it on, and then the next plane had hit, and then turn it off, then the next, you know, then one building to fall. Man, but we kept going. But the surreal moment for me was that uh, Friday – we finished half day, drove out the Nylon. That Saturday was IADS. First day of IADS for the SQT class we had out there. And, I, you know, me, I usually give the rah-rah speech and all that before we start. And this time I was just like, all right, gents, guess what? It's real now. And, and look around because there's probably some of you, you know, that aren't going to be around here in a few years. And it was sketchy because some of the dudes in that class are no longer with us. Sure. Well, just think about that. Once the fighting got real good and going in Afghanistan, Iraq jumped off. So oh. the frogs weren't going. There's another playground. I mean, <laughs> training for Afghanistan the whole time, then all of a sudden, uh, change two. You're going to Iraq. Right, that? All right. Wizard, what was it like for you? Because you weren't in the service at that time, right? No, I was working as a mechanic in Nashville. What was tell tell us about that? That's a good perspective. Uh, I think uh, I didn't have an understanding of what the gravity of that really was. Obviously, it was a major event, and I won't forget. It leaves an impact on where you are and what you did. But to the level that I understand what that means, uh, what its future impact would be compared to the understanding I have now, it's it's absolutely night and day. Wow! I wasn't in the Navy for another year and a half after that. Wow! Now that's fast. gotta be a crazy. I mean, that's a good point. You you joined up knowing you were going into a war. It jumped off while we were training for it. Yeah, that feeling you're like, Ugh. oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a shift. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a cataclysmic shift in our community 
about all right no longer fit isn't the main mission it wasn't if it was when is when that was our war yeah as soon as they started saying that yeah it was on well well the guy you know let's let's before we bring him on wizard please i and i bro when i (laughs) when when bernie sent his bio to me the first time and i read it he says here's a short bio <laughs> yeah, I, do, I I'm going to do the rundown on on his bio, but this has been chopped, I mean, significantly down, but it's still unbelievable. And we're only focusing on the 9/11 aspects of this. His career spans 30 years in law enforcement, and it's far beyond just what happened on 9/11. So, Bernie Carrick, 62, he's from Newark, New Jersey. Uh at the age of 3, he was abandoned by his mother who was subsequently um beaten to death when he was 9 years old. He was a high school dropout, later volunteered for the army. Uh, where he earned his GED. Uh, he was an MP in Korea um, and did some other things in the Army. Got out of there. Eventually, 1986, he starts working for the New York City Police Department. After working on the street for a while, gets assigned to the Narcotics Division, uh, Major Case Unit. In 91, uh, with them, he transfers over to the U.S. Department of Justice's New York Drug Enforcement Task Force, uh, which was responsible for overseeing some of the most far-reaching drug investigations in New York City at the time. His career was rather meteoric. In 1994, he becomes the first deputy and then later the commissioner of New York City's Department of Correction, where he, the most notable thing he did was oversee the jail system, uh, including Rikers Island, which was known as probably the mo- one of the most violent incarceration units in the country. And under his command, they did a lot of uh, changes to their system and their policies, uh, achieving some historic reductions, 93% in inmate on inmate violence. This received a lot of international recognition. And that comes into play uh, later in the story here. Uh, 2000, he becomes the 40th police commissioner of New York City. And of course, he is on duty in that position during 9-11. Oversees the rescue recovery investigation of that massive, massive uh, event. 2003, he's appointed by, George, uh, by the uh, Bush administration as the interim minister of Iraq. In 2004... Uh, Bush again nominates him to be Secretary of Homeland Security, and this becomes the beginning of a downward spiral for him, which creates an incredible dichotomy in the arc of his career. He has to withdraw his name because of, of course, in these congressional uh, inquiries into people's past history, the political opponents will dig up anything they can find. He employed a nanny for his children, who was an illegal, uh, an illegal you know, paid under the table for that. These things came out. Eventually, this all accumulates into him having to, him pleading guilty to eight counts of false statements and tax charges, and he goes to prison for three years. Ouch! So the uh, being in charge of the prison system in New York City, as well as being the police commissioner, he goes all the way to being a federal felon. Um, dude, this we could do a whole show just reading his bio, bro. Yeah, I know. I haven't got into his like honorary degrees, the books he's written, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, over his thirty career, thirty year career in criminal justice, he's one of the most decorated police commissioners. This guy is. You know what my favorite is, impressive. Marcus? He's in the Centurion Black Belt Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, dude. He's a fifth-degree master instructor in Korean and Japanese karate. So not only is a kid from the streets of New York, the commissioner jail, he's a he's a convict himself, but he will roundhouse kick you in your head, dude. <laughs> I love that about this guy. I love Bernie. Well, what do you think, man? 
Let's get this guy on here and let's hear how absolutely spectacular his never quit story or stories are, gents. What do you think? Yeah, I'm curious what he's going to say. All right. Marcus, and there are a few human beings on this planet who actually understand the term America, right? The people that live it in their bones. It feeds through their veins like a whole new kind of blood. A blood that just oozes red, white, and blue. The man that's here, he gets it to the core. Would you agree with me? Absolutely. There's a couple of career paths you can follow in this country from start to finish, and they give you opportunities to get in situations that you you can't get in another any other profession and uh, he walked in one of them and then had the opportunity to prove himself well i i mean we read his resume and i'm just my mind is still flipped out but i i just let's let's stop beleaguering the point and bring him on ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages i'd like to welcome to the show mr bernard b carrick sir welcome to the team never quit podcast thank you guys I, I, it's just such an honor. We had the distinct pleasure to meet uh, a couple months ago at, at the Journey Home Project, Charlie Daniels, great charity out there. And I just got to say, you know, getting to have dinner with you the night before was one of the most thrilling night, times of my whole life. And the fact that you're here to share your story, your greatest never quit story or stories with our audience is just a true honor. We really appreciate it, sir. Thank you. All right, so we're going to jump right into what we call the Mad Minute. We're going to loosen up our our neurofibers, our little neuroplasticity. We're going to develop some rapport. So are you ready? Are you ready for the Mad Minute, sir? All right, run it. All right, ready? Marcus, shoot. All right, sir, what was your first car? My first car was a Corvair. I think I paid about 100 bucks for it, a white Corvair. It It lasted for about a week. (laughs) because <laughs> you got someone gave you lemon didn't they <laughs> hey, 100 bucks what do you want <laughs> all right wizard let's have one day that you would like to go back and relive again or moment day or moment you'd like to go back and relive again um i think the day i became new york city police commissioner um one of the greatest days of my life uh taking over the nypd Wow. I cool. mean, that's pretty awesome. Uh, that, that's a big day. All right. All right. Responsibility. If you could give truth serum to any president in history, who would it be and what would you ask him? I think it would be President Obama. Um, I'd ask him about Benghazi. Oh, I'd ask him about uh, Fast and Furious. I'd ask him about a whole bunch of things, but I think those are two of the top ones. Oh, that's awesome. I know our buddy uh, Tonto hmm. would love that answer for sure. All right, yeah, right. Marcus, shoot. Okay, uh, would you rather be at complete peace or know the answer to every question? Uh, you know what? Complete peace. Uh, it's never going to happen, but, um, you know, you could always try, I guess. <laughs> you can always pray, right? That's what I did. Yeah. All right, Wizard, shoot. All right, we asked this question to a lot of people, but it just never gets old. If you could go back in history and spend, let's say, two weeks with any individual, who would that be? Uh, you know what, guys? I've worked for with some and for some of the greatest people in history. Um, I, I think mm-hmm. um, I think it's a group of guys I, I uh, started out with uh, in Saudi Arabia, came out of the Special Forces Group of Fort Bragg. They were my mentors. They were the guys that taught me sort of how to be a man 
those were the guys I would go back to. Oh, that's awesome, mm. man. I'll tell you what, I, some of the greatest dudes I've ever worked with are Green Berets, man. My, ta- my hat always comes off to those guys. Yeah, both R- Rhett and I did, um, uh, I was at Bragg, too, for my, I'm an 18 Deltas, we, you know, a bastard uh, in the SEAL teams, man. And it, it was a great time being over there. And I'm still buddies with the, with the guys that, that we linked up with going through that training. That's awesome, yep. dude. All right, all right, here you go. If you, could, if you had to get into a, a fist fight with one of them, who would it be? Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger? If I had to get in a fist fight with them? <laughs> yep. Against them? Yep. <laughs> I have to be Arnold. <laughs> I have to be Arnold. <laughs> you know, those, especially the guys in the SEALs, uh, you know, those big guys, uh, you know, they may be strong, but uh, a lot of times it don't, they just don't have it. Isn't um, that the truth? Stallone's my man. I, I couldn't go against him anyway. We've been friends for about 20 years. Uh, <laughs> you know, but he's my man. I, I couldn't do it. And that's why I asked you, because yeah, I know yeah, your right? buddies. Are the yeah. <laughs> yeah, he can scrap. He's, yeah, a, bo- yeah. he's a boxer. He can Absolutely. Buy- All right, Marcus, last question. Go, brother. All right, favorite superhero? Favorite superhero? Uh, you know what? I, I take it back to, you know, the 1950s, Superman. Yes. Thank you, sir. That you're like we're so few and far between nowadays with all the movies and all that stuff. There's a, thank God for us that are still holding hard on the old school. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, again, I want to say hey, thank you. There was a, a, a suicide attack today in New York City. I know you are under the gun to provide really critical insight for the country via a bunch of news sources. So, again, we really appreciate your time today, sir. So let's jump right into this. The reason why people come to the TNQ podcast is to find some semblance of of grit, some semblance of perseverance, stories that can inspire them to dig in and really face the hardships of life. So, sir, without further ado, would you please share your greatest never quit story or stories with our listeners? You know, guys, I think the the greatest story, uh, you know, not not only my story, it's a story of thousands of of New York City first responders. Um, When you think of never quit, uh, it's the story of 9-11. Amen. Um, I was the police commissioner on September 11th. uh, When the first plane hit Tower 1, I was actually in my office. When the second plane slammed into Tower 2, I was standing underneath and in front of the building. Oh, my God. Um, I would, you know, the the, the debris, the the plane, the building uh, showered down on me and my staff. But over the next, over the next several hours, I was in command of a group of men and women that honestly affected the greatest rescue mission in the history of our country, um, where they took 20 to 25,000 people out of those buildings, and they evacuated hundreds of thousands of people out of southern Manhattan into the Bronx, Queens, Staten into Jersey, uh, you know, uh, taking over boats on the harbor, getting them over into the Jersey Bay. when you think of never quitting, that was a day that we looked at it in New York City like it was the end of the world because of the enormity of the the attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, 18 square acres uh, of a crime scene. Uh, we wow. lost uh, 1,700 civilians. Uh, I lost 23 guys that worked for me. The Port Authority cops lost 37. The uh, fire department lost 343. And every one of those men and women that responded that died. 
They knew the perils inherent with that attack, the, the destruction that was there, the devastation that was there, but they still went into those buildings. They didn't stop even after, when you think, guys, when you think of never quitting, they were ordered to evacuate. Many of these guys heard the evacuation order and stayed in the buildings and kept going up into the buildings looking for uh, people that they could take out because they knew they were there. Wow. So uh, I don't think there's a, there's a better example of never quitting in this country than that. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I remember when it happened. We've, we've talked about it once or twice on the show. And, you know, the surge of patriotism, the surge of of knowing that finally – it was almost inspiring and and i don't you know that's that's a little counterintuitive when you talk about tragedy to be inspired by it but i remember you know marcus and you can share your time or wizard but when when those buildings hitting on the way into work it took me five hours to get into work but feeling like finally we're gonna go get to go after the people that did it I can't imagine what it was like in the midst of it, as it was the fires. The can you just describe that that when you when you got the first call and what was going through your mind and and what led up to you getting over to the the other to the towers? When the when the first plane hit, um, I was actually I was I just finished working out in my office, and my chief of staff came in and said a plane had just hit Tower One, and I assumed, as probably everybody else did that it was a small plane, one of these Cessnas that fly up and down the Hudson River. And uh, I went into my conference room, looked out the window, and I could see the towers about a half a mile away. I could see the damage and the destruction to the building. When I got down there, we couldn't turn into that block, Vesey Street, because the people were jumping from the building and they were landing on Vesey. They were landing in the courtyard between Tower 1 and Tower 2, so we had to back the vehicles up and wait for the mayor there, I had called for a temporary command bus to be put on the corner of Barclay and West Broadway. And while I was waiting for the mayor, the second plane slammed through the north side of the tower. And it was at that point that I realized uh, we were under attack. Wow. Now, mm. I, I know a lot, a lot of, there's been a lot of stories done, but, you know, I don't know if there's too many people that can really can really surmise it the way you can being that you were right there on the ground. But, you know, when you think about the, the, and it goes back to that question of that Marcus asked, you know, we do it in jest, but this is the truest question you can ask, you know, peace or answers. Those people that were facing, you know, 3000 degree burns or, to end their life consciously, to get away and to, to to make a decision to die in that capacity. How overwhelming was that to see? You, you know what, Dave, and and I think I think you guys would get this, uh, being that the you know the the, uh, the the jobs you've had quite often in the jobs we've had. Uh, there's not too often that you you look at something and you feel that it's completely. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do. Um, you know, you're completely defenseless. Uh, look at Marcus's circumstance. That's a circumstance where, you know, a lot of people would look at it and say, you know, th- there's no surviving in this. And yet he got through it. Um, I have to tell you, there were times in those first several minutes I watched, I don't know, you know, dozens, dozens. I know you guys may have seen it on TV. You saw 
bodies drop, uh, you know, one, two at a time. I saw two, three at a time, oh. dozens of people jump to their death. And there wasn't a damn thing I could do about it. You know, you, you were completely, you know, it, it, there was nothing you could do. You couldn't yell up to them and tell them, stop, wait, we're going to get you help. Don't do that sitting in an inferno. And they had a choice, you know, to just burn alive or, or, or take, take the jump. And uh, many of them, far more than anybody saw or was able to see on TV, many of them took that jump. Wow. Well, I, that was the one thing that I think was unique about 9-11 and every other war that we've been in. When the first plane hit, there was enough time in between for all of us to tune in to see what was just going on on the news. And I, I say this to a lot of people sometimes, man, movies do a great job. And, and even watching it through the TV, we were all there with y'all. But the one thing New Yorkers have that we don't is, is the smell. Right? There's certain things that go down in a situation, especially when it's getting real bad and things are catching on fire. So the heat from that flame, we couldn't feel that through the TV. The smell and, and those, those subtle screams that you, you can't hear over, over all that or what echo. And when you're saying... The, the one thing, the first thing you do when everything falls apart and, and this comes with experience is you stop and you, you look, you assess, right? You have, we have a saying in the teams, you don't run to your death. Well, in order to, to see the gravity of what you're about to walk into, you got to take a step back and there was no way you could do that in that situation. And, and what happens when you start getting hit and they start hitting you and hitting you and hitting you, what New York City did when all the training was gone, it went on to that, I, your love for your countrymen. Hey, man. I, I can't stop coming back up here. There's one there's, there's one more up there, right? Right. And, uh, yeah. man, that was a hell of a day. You, you know what, Marcus? Uh, you know, and this goes this goes to what you're saying and, and what Dave said a minute ago about, you know, patriotism and how the New Yorkers united and came together. That what I'm going to tell you is a true story, and not too many people know it. But uh, and everybody saw the president. President Bush came on September 14th. He came down to ground zero. He stood up on the pile with the bullhorn next to the retired fireman. He spoke to the men and women there. He inspired them. He motivated basically a nation. And when he came down off that pile, he came back to a suburban and he told us to get in. Now, this is the president's suburban in the back of the suburban. And there's four seats but there were six of us in total with the with the president, and he basically told all of us to get in. So we're we're kind of we all jump in the back of the suburban. We're kind of sitting on top of him. Rudy's uh, the mayor Giuliani's leg is over his, and you know we're we're a tight bunch. We get in the suburban. We're going up the West Side Highway, and uh, we're going to the Javits Center to see the victims' families, the the cops and the firemen that that were missing at the time. The president was going to speak to their families. And as we were going up the West Side Highway, the president looked out the window and he said, oh, my God, look at this support. Look at these New Yorkers. Look at this unity. And they had signs. God bless America. Go get them, George Bush. George Bush is the best and all this stuff. And Rudy, Giul Rudy Giuliani looks over at the president and he said, Mr. President, he says, I hate to be the one to tell you this. We're on the West Side of Manhattan. Not one of those people voted for you. <laughs> and everybody started laughing and the governor started laughing and Rudy looked at the governor, Governor Pataki and he said uh, uh, Governor, none of them voted for you neither and, you know, the bottom line is it, it was true, you know, this is New York City is a big democratic city uh, you know, lots of liberals in New York City but on that day 
And I often wonder, I often wonder where are those people now that was out there then that wanted to go get the enemy, that wanted the people have responsible that did this. Where are they today? Um, because today they, they run and hide. Should you mention going after radical Islam or, or anything else? Um, but on that day, on that day and the days after, it was a united city for sure. Uh, let's let's turn back to the moment itself and really talk about you as an individual and the decisions that you had to make. Not just, I mean, when you say the decisions, the thousands of decisions that were coming at you uh, like a belt-fed machine gun. How, tell, walk us through some of that and managing that stress, managing making life and death decisions for your troops, for your team, and for the city. What was that like, and how long did it last before you finally were like, I got to close my eyes for right. a second? Yeah, just to add to that, because here, here's the deal. Is like you, you got catapulted into that never-quit story right then. You didn't even have a chance to fight, get beat down, and then lose and come back from it. You started in it. You know, about, I mean, you know what, Marcus, that's that's a really good point because we've seen, you know, man-made disasters in this country. We've seen, you know, uh, natural disasters. Uh, a lot of times, most times, you have some sort of warning this is coming. On September 11th uh, of 2001, I had no warning this was coming until the first plane hit Tower One, and then we assumed, we thought, it was an accident. I didn't know until 9.02 that morning that this was an attack on America. So the benefit to us, and, and this goes back to whether it's first responders in New York City and the fire department or police department or Navy SEALs, special operations, special forces guys, you know what? It's all about planning, preparation, practice, training. training. Um, we had planning and protocols in place that if there's an event like this, we never planned for somebody to hit those towers, but we had planned and practiced for everything under the sun, every disaster you can imagine. So when the second plane hit tower two, and we realized we were under attack, there was a, a, uh, a response called Operation Omega. And Operation Omega was basically you close down the entire city. It's the first time if you can you can go back and, and if you reflect on that day, you'll see signs. New York City closed. It was the first wow. time I think it ever. I ordered the closing of New York City. The only people that could get into the city were first responders. No movement on the highways. Um, we then had the response from every single precinct. There's 76 precincts in New York City. 76 individual police stations around the city. There was a response from every single police station. There was a response from every single firehouse. The entire New York City Correction Department, we had 13,000 correction officers overseeing Rikers Island, which I ran before I ran the NYPD. We took all of their spare correction officers, got them into the city. Wow. Um, and then every city agency was merged into one under the umbrella of the Office of Emergency Management to respond to the crisis. And from that point on, it was all about, you know, handling the disaster, responding to the disaster. So you had the response, the rescue efforts, which really honestly uh, and unfortunately turned out to be not much because there was nothing that survived. Um, you had the rescue efforts, you had the investigation, 
and then the aftermath of the cleanup and debris. And, and to give you an idea of how enormous this thing was, think of 24 hours a day for seven months around the clock, one truck after another going into the debris zone wow. of the World Trade Center, removing debris into Staten Island, where every bit of that stuff was sifted through right, yeah. like a fine-tooth comb, right down to the point that we found wedding rings, we found medallions, religious medallions, wow. you name it. All of that stuff had to be go, go, gone through. I mean, as meticulous as sifting for gold, right? We were, that's what Literally. You, well, I it's mean, the gold of people's exactly, memory. That's what, I, that's what I'm talking it's about. the gold you're, you're, of people's you're trying memory. trying to find what, what the, our people yeah. do that. You know, you're going to comb exactly. through every section of it. You know what, Marcus? That's exactly right. And so many, so many loved ones were identified by those small things. Because keep in mind, guys, you know, I had I, I had 23 people to work for me. And honestly, as hard as this sounds, if you could see this cup, mm-hmm. I could have given back many of them to the families in this cup. Oh. Um, oh. You know, the, they were disintegrated. They vaporized. The first two cops we found... Um, they actually, they had been standing, uh, apparently standing next to each other. We found the metal pieces from their Glock. We found their shield pins. Um, we found whatever metal, metal was on their belts, but think of the uniform that you guys wear that the military and the cops wear no vest, no uniform, no leather belts, no shoes, no boots, no nothing wow. except for the metal that was on their body. That's what we had to deal with. Uh, That's great. Um, I know Bernardo when the when the Hilo got shot down. Yeah. That same thing. You yep. could, but left. everybody got back something, Which even if huge. it was a dog tag. That huge. was left. No, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I want to just go back to the question and and say, in that space, one, how long did you go before you shut your eyes to get a break? And what was the driving thing in your mind and your psyche that kept you going and kept you going? I think was, well, I, got, I got back to my office. Uh, by the time I got back to my office late that night, we had set up camp in the building. So guys had gone up to my apartment in, in uh, the Bronx, uh, took a bunch of my clothes, my, my BDUs and everything else. So my office looked like a barracks by time it, uh, by the time I got back there about 2.30 in the morning. Um, I actually laid down on a couch in the back of my office around 2.33 a.m., but I could not sleep because these the F-16s, F-15s were flying overhead up and down the East River, and every damn time I heard a plane, I would I would sit up, and I'm, I'm thinking, what oh, is yeah. that? What is that noise? Wow. I've gotten an hour or two of sleep. I met the mayor back in the, uh, in the police academy where we had set up shop. Um, I met him there about 6 or 5 or 6 in the morning. Um, didn't get much sleep that night. I didn't actually get out of the building, get back home for about three weeks. Oh my gosh. So, uh, you know, we were, we were pretty busy. These were, these were 18 to 20 hour days. Um, and you know, look, we're dealing with the rescue and recovery. Uh, but I also had 23 people that work for me. Many of them I knew, um, that evening, uh, on September 11th, around five, five thirty that night, I had to go back to the auditorium. They had flown them in in helicopters from all over the city, uh, brought them into headquarters. Uh, so I had the 23 families in headquarters. I had to walk in and, and speak to them and, and talk to them. And when you think, Dave, when you talk about 
what inspires you to get through this. And I am confident that for you guys, it's exactly the same thing that it was for me. When I walked in that auditorium, there was a firefighter, uh, a, fire, a retired firefighter in mm -hmm. New York City. His name was Joseph, uh, John Vigiano. John Vigiano had two sons. Joseph Vigiano worked for me, and he had a fireman, a son named John Vigiano, worked in the fire department. Both his sons were missing. Oh, no. Both were missing. Joe Vigiano was a real heroic guy in the NYPD. He was assigned to emergency service, had been involved in two gun battles over a five-year period, shot five times between the two gun battles, and still came back to work, would not retire, <laughs> wound up dying in the World Trade Center. But his father, John Vigiano, was probably one of my greatest inspirations. Wow. You know, this is a guy that sat in that auditorium. He said, Commissioner, I understand what's going on. I've been there. All I'm asking is that you do your best, and we're going to be there to support you. He's going to be there to support me. His wow. kids were missing. Um, and and that, that's the kind of thing, those kinds of things. You're there to back the men and women that work for you, and you're there really to fight for the men and women that aren't there anymore. Amen to that. Well, as soon as you shut that city down, you guys went on deployment. You don't come home from that. And what you were saying is kind of relative to ours. I mean, you, you train for it, and you train for it, and then once you deploy, once you flip that switch, it's not off till you come back home. And since you don't go back home, you're in the mindset. You don't, I like to say this, you don't stop being a fireman when you make a bad fire or a cop when you, stop, when you make a bad call, but you can't stop being what you are. And the one thing That's I've learned about New York City, and this is the greatest part about our country because it's one of the oldest cities, especially in the firefighter group, and it's that legacy, right? The passed Amen. down from grandfather to father to son. It, and what that tells you is even when the kids are coming up and they, they say they want to go be a doctor, like you can go be a doctor, you'll probably be great at it. But there's a lot of legacies in this family that'll t tell you right now that we are designed to be firefighters and we're great at it. And when you get them guys that... that it's, you know, some of those families, you just hear their name is just synonymous for getting after it. Yeah. You, you know what, Marcus? It's, it's funny you say that because my, my son is a cop in the Newark Police Department. He's on the Newark SWAT. He knows a bunch of guys you know. Uh, he trains with a bunch of the SEALs, uh, SF guys down at Bragg. He, um, he's been on the job for 13 years. He's now assigned to the FBI Terrorist Task Force in, uh, in Newark, awesome. in the Newark Field Division. But when he got out of high school, um, and much like most New York City cops or other cops on the job, you want your kids to do better th than you. So what do I do? You know, I send them off to St. John's. I want them to go to, you know, get a, get a degree and go to law school. You yeah. Know, become a, you know, that worked for about a, a, a week. You know, he came back from, by the end of by the end of his first school year and said, Dad, I hate school. I hate school. I want to go on a job. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Now he's been on the job. He's 32 years old. He's been on 13 years already. Um, and he's doing quite well. But, uh, you know, in the NYPD, I've had great grandfathers, grandfathers, fathers, and sons. Wow. Um, all on the job within about five, five years of each other. Well, so it's, it's a crazy legacy. Sir, what, where, I just want to, where did it start for you? I mean, when, obviously, you have had a life of serving man where did when and where did the, not only that start but your never quit attitude when did you start learning that too 
You know, well, my never quit attitude, you know, I was born in a, in a pretty humble, you know, from pretty humble beginnings. My, uh, I don't know if you know this, my, my mother was murdered uh, we, we when did. I was nine. I was abandoned when I was three years old. Uh, I went to Eastside High in Patterson, New Jersey, which was a, it was famous, it became famous in a, in a major motion picture with Morgan Freeman, uh, you know, called Lean On mm, Me. Lean On awesome. Me. I was, I was one of those 25 little white kids that ran around the school acting like a maniac. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I got involved in the martial arts when I was about 13. I, I got my black belt when I was 16, but it was the military. The next year, when I went in the service, uh, I, I joined the Army. I went in the MPs. Uh, it was the military and my martial arts background that set me off in, in a position where, uh, you know, I would take off from there. And it was, you know, when I got in the military, it was a niche that I I thought, you know, I like this. I, I like the uniformity. I like the discipline. I like the respect. I'm, I'm extremely patriotic. My father was in the Marine Corps. He was a big patriot. Um, that's what started me. And then one of my first jobs out of the military, I wound up going to Saudi Arabia. Um, I lived in Saudi Arabia for about two and a half years. And all of the guys that I worked with uh, came out of Bragg. Wow. Came out of the SF groups of Bragg. So I was surrounded by this group of you know, dynamic, battle-tested warriors, uh, you know, dating back to coming out of Vietnam um, in the SF time uh, that uh, was around me and sort of acted as my secondary fathers. So uh, they didn't let me mess up. And, uh, you know, I took it from there. How, how critical is it in our darkest times to, to have those battle-tested people around us, those people who truly understand the never-quit mindset when maybe we're struggling. How critical is it? We talk about a lot. How critical is it? You know what, Dave? I think there's two things. One, it's that mindset of people. It's that that core group of, of men and women in this country that, that know what patriotism is. They know how to, how to you know, motivate and inspire others. But I, I, I got to tell you, guys, I, the one thing that disappoints me extremely in this country right now is parenting. Um, wow. You know, we, we have cities in this country that are just dropping off the face of the earth um, because these kids don't have parents. Um, I think parenting is, is a, a big issue um, that has to be dealt with. And, and I think parents should be held more accountable for the kids' actions. Um, you know, I can remember, you know, where I grew up, you know, if a cop told me get off the corner and, uh, you know, I didn't move fast enough, he'd slap me in the shins with his nightstick. And if I went upstairs hobbling and told my father that the cop slapped me in the shins with his nightstick because I didn't move fast enough, then my father cracked me and tell me <laughs> the next time he tells you to move, then you move. That'd be the end of it. Today, that doesn't happen. Today, you know, if, if that cop, God forbid, he even says something, you got parents, they want to sue the city, they want to sue the cop, they want to, you know, they want the cop's badge and job. And, you know, it's it, we're living in a different time. And, uh, you know, I thank God. I was I just came back from the Army-Navy game the other day. I was there with uh, Nine Line Apparel. Awesome uh, group. Hanging out with this, this fantastic tailgate. And I swear to God, I looked around thousands of people in that group and i thought these are the people that's taking care of their kids 
These are the people that's teaching their kids to stand up and salute the flag. These are the people that's telling, you know, their kids in high school and college, you don't take a knee when you're in a football game. Um, but where's the rest of the country? It just, it kills me. It kills me that, you know, there's only a core group of people in this country that think like that. And I think you're, you're spot on there. And one of the interesting things that I really find fascinating about you and, and, and where you've taken your incredible life lesson, not only from 9-11, but becoming police commissioner, your meteoric rise to commission. Uh, I know you were involved with uh, Mayor Giuliani and some huge transformational cases for the mafia and back in the 90s and really taking then in post in Iraq and what you've done. But now you, you're, you're really saying, all right, we have this generation, if you will, that's been lost without good parents and the in in the in the you know the the penal system is overrun with these kids how what are you doing to take your legacy to take your experience to help these kids in this space with trying to rehabilitate the the justice system well you know one of the things a lot of things uh, people may not know about me um one of the things is in, in the aftermath in, in 2004 I was nominated to take over the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Um, I had a nanny, a domestic servant that took care of my kids. Um, uh, my wife and I paid her cash. Um, I actually was sent to prison by the wow. United States government. I was sent to prison for four years. I served three years and 11 days for false statements and tax charges relating to that and a few other things. Um, it, you know, look. That's quite a unique perspective from the guy that uh, ran, yeah. a guy that ran Rikers Island to being incarcerated. That's on, I mean, that's huge insight. That's massive. Well, mm -hmm. honestly, David, it's bigger than huge because at the end of the day, there is no one, not one per. We got 300 million people in this country. There isn't one person in the country that's run the largest police department and the largest jail system in the nation and then been inside as a prisoner. So I can tell you it's far more unique than you could imagine, number one. And number two, I think most disturbing for me was that I got to see things that I never saw from the outside. Wow. You know, you think that prison is, is uh, you know, uh, prison is for bad guys to do bad things. Um, honestly, that's what you would think. And then I went to a federal minimum security camp in Cumberland, Maryland, and I met guys just like us. I met young military guys that falsified a document on their recruitment application that wound up going to prison for 18 months. What? I met, huh? I hear, I hear, this is a really good one, especially you guys would get this. I had a young Marine. He was, and, and this, this is a twofold story. One, what the system can do, but two, more importantly, what it could do to you as a person. We had a kid come into the system. He was, he was going to serve two years. He was a young Marine. He was 22 years old. He was a sniper in Iraq. He had a pair of night vision goggles. He bought them on his own. They're his. He purchased them legally. He owned them. He sold the night vision goggles that he bought. He sold them on eBay. Unfortunately for him, he sold them to a guy on eBay that was selling them internationally without the right permit. So when the government locked up that guy, they came back and locked up everybody that sold to him oh. as conspirators. 
This kid got 24 months for conspiracy to distribute military right. equipment to Overseas. a foreign government. That's, that's he had nothing kind of, to do with it. That sounds he kind had of nothing thin. to do with it. So here's the deal. He comes into the system. I can promise you he was a Marine. He His, his inmate work boots gleamed, you know, <laughs> like jump boots. His prison fatigues were spotless starched. He had a buzz cut Marine haircut. But I'm going to tell you something. 18 months later, the day he was discharged, I was there. He left a thug. Oh, his no. pants were hanging off his behind. He walked around in sandals. His hair was scruffy. He talked all kind of garbage to the staff. In 18 months, we took a United States Marine and we turned him into a monster, into a thug. Is that really what we want going back into society? No. Wow. And I think the justice system does it. You know, the punishment should fit the crime. You take good people that make mistakes and you turn them into convicted felons. It's wrong. You want to you want to do something for society. That part of the system has to change. Wow. What a what a campaign. It seems like well, we're still running laws that were applied back in the day that the don't even shouldn't even exist anymore and it, some people it seems like people are just a, anything that has been done can be undone i mean we can catch up with with the laws we got guys in prison for the dumbest thing i ever heard of man and, and you're right it's a gladiator academy i mean you, you, you know what marcus listen first of all you need to get the congress members of congress need to do their job and stop being afraid to do their job number one um you got guys in prison serving time in federal prison you ready Commercial fishermen caught too many fish. No. They caught too many fish. They're sitting in prison for 18 months, two years. you got guys that hunted with the wrong ammunition or without the appropriate permit or with the wrong weapon. No. They're in federal prison. This is, this is insanity. You know what? Bad guys that do bad things, prison. Some people put in there for life. Some whack them. I don't care what you do to them. They don't belong to be back in society. But when you take good people that make mistakes, people that pay taxes, take care of their kids, go to church and all this other stuff, and then you stick them in prison and you guarantee that for the rest of their life they're going to be a convicted felon and they're never going to get a real job. They can't take care of their family, take care of their family anymore. That's crazy, man. We're, we're dumbing down society. Yeah. I mean, you do something, catch too many fish, shooting with Ronald's like, hey, man, you know, okay, that, that's a rule. You Fine. broke it. We're going to find you. Maybe you have to paint the courthouse. I, when I got in trouble when I was a kid, which was kind of a lot, man, one of the judge and our lawyer, they got together because they knew us in the community, right? We, that's right. It was kind of tough. So when we would screw up and be mischievous like boys do, man, be like, all right, you're painting the courthouse. And we had to do that. Wow. And then we yeah, painted you know, our dudes. Marcus, you know, you know what? Those people are gone, man. Those people are gone. The people, people with common sense, the old timers like that, you know, listen, back when my father was young, you know, you got, you got jammed up. You, you got stupid. You went into a courthouse. Judge said, all right, here's the deal. You're going to do a year in jail or you're going to go down and sign up in the Marine Corps right now. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay. I got it. I'm on the way to the recruiter. Wow. You know what? And those kids turned out to be good kids. But today, we don't have that. You take a kid into the system today, nobody wants to give anybody a second chance. Prosecutors want a victory. Right. They don't want justice. Numbers. And I'm not, we, numbers. We said, you know, criminals are a different deal, but if that, that whole 
phase when you're 16 to you're, I don't know, 27 as, as a guy or a girl. Man, how many mistakes? You're supposed to make mistakes. You got to walk and be the man that you're not sometimes to become the man that you are. And in order to know that you have a good life, you got to have some bad times, right? You got to make some That's mistakes right. to gain perspective because 10 years old to 40, it's an opinion. 40 to 60, there's your perspective. And then after that, it's wisdom. And if you, I get the laws, man. We we have rules and regulations. We have to live by it, man. But experience, people need that. I mean, in order to run a country as dynamic as ours, to evolve as we're supposed to, man, you need risk takers. I'm not today, talking today, about criminals. I'm just talking, people screw up, man. God dang. Yeah, t- listen, today kids are not allowed to be kids. You, you've got school administrators in this country, and I've seen it in just about every state. You know, they're suspending six-year-olds because they point their finger like yeah, crazy. a gun and shoot at somebody. They're suspending those kids for being kids. That's that's nuts. It's just nuts. Well, sure. They mimic what they see on movies, the news. Anytime you turn on television, it's, a, I mean, it's kids. It, it is where our society, I think, is moving away from some core key things. Now, I, we're, we're running. We're coming up to the end here because I know you got to jump off and go on to some other uh, you got some um, some new sources that really want to get you know your opinion today based on the attacks. But the last thing I want to ask you, sir, is based on this whole concept of being in very difficult times, it, whether it's in the times of tragedy or it's up against society changing, what are some ideas that can help our listeners prepare themselves for that kind of insurgency? Whether it's the literal insurgency of of you know the threat that we face, or it's the metaphorical insurgency of a shifting society, how can people formulate the never quit mindset? What are a couple ideas for them? Well, first of all, you know the the one thing I have a big problem with these days is the news and the media. You know, I have a seventeen year old and a fifteen year old. Um, you know, I tr- I try to force into their head. Don't believe anything you read, you know, on the Internet. Um, go go after the source. Look, look to make sure the information is va- valid and accurate. Um, we, we have a society. We, we have kids graduating from universities, major, major Ivy League universities that are morons. They know <laughs> nothing about our history. Our history in this country, the country that that school is in, they know nothing. Um, and I think that's a bit bizarre. So I think we have to better educate our kids. Um, I think we have to live in a world of reality. Uh, I think we have to motivate and inspire others. Um, and when you think of never quitting, um, you know, don't give up on this country. I mean, people, I've, I've heard so much, especially in this last political year. Right. You know, I, I don't want to get into politics, but there's so much divisiveness, so much you know, I, I've, I've got friends, personal friends, like very close friends, won't talk to me because I supported, uh, you know, Donald Trump for president. Wow. Um, it's insanity. I mean, you know, I just think, uh, you know, we got to get our head together. And, um, you know, thanks to guys like you and guys, you know, you and guys like you. Um, you know, you're getting the message out that it shouldn't, you know, this stuff shouldn't be so. Um, I applaud you for what you do. I, I really, I, I admire you guys for your backgrounds, for what you've done. Marcus, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very close to the Dietz family. In fact, I'll be out in uh, 
I'll be in Colorado in uh, Dave, when are we doing this thing? It's in July, right? It's in July. Yeah, with Mama D. Yeah, great. Yeah. I'll be yeah, the, likewise, the keynote speaker at her uh, her event there uh, in July. Uh, she asked me to come out in July. Um, so I'm a big fan of yours uh, and, and, and all of the guys in special operations. I've got a bunch of very close friends, uh, real close, um, that are in special operations. Uh, you know, we live in a world today where the conventional armies, the conventional enemy, as we knew it from Vietnam back, is no longer there. Uh, we live in a world where, where we're fighting chameleons, and our military focus had to change. And you guys, the special operations community, is that change. So I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you continue to do. And all your brothers and sisters out there, I thank them as well. Thank you, Commissioner yes, thank you so much. And, and, and it's, again, from the three of us we and from all of our listeners, uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your life, and your experience with us. And God bless you and, and all the work you're doing in the future, sir. Uh, you know, we just, we really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, we're thinking about you guys down here. Thanks, guys. Be good. Yep. Take care. Stay safe. Well, I'll tell you what, man. When when you hear that dude talk, you 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 can tell that he's been around the block, brother. Oh yeah. I imagine we didn't get into half the stuff that Oh, not even. Yeah. And and I I mean, I really again, you gotta just commend the guy. The guy had I don't know, one you know, terrorist attack in New York City. He yeah. had fifty different interviews to do. He took Yeah, the we're time. thinking about you guys in New York too. I yeah. Mean, they, they, you know, our New Yorkers, man, they kind of they take it on the chin for us all the all time, time bro. Before before I got married, I uh, when I would go up to New York and visit, I would stay in the firehouses. That's what you a, said. Yeah. Hotel. Yeah. When, you, when you walk into a firehouse and it's it's not you know, the awards for the what's that? But there's, all the guys there's that the have plaques died, that have died. Yeah. You know, it looks like a platoon hut. Totally. With all of our guys, you know how we do that. Totally. Totally. Oh man, when I went was you know, I did my rotation up in New York City with eighteen Delta. Oh, yeah. And it was what, awesome. Uh, Bellevue? No, every Kings. hospital. Kings. Oh, great. I, I was in every hospital. Nice. I worked in I don't even know, like ten different firehouses. What a great that was best oh, training. Oh bro, it was Amen. awesome. But that's where I really came to know and love the New York mentality. What and the number, I don't know, Wizard, did this number get crazy to you? The yeah, oh, yeah. the seven months? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, them in doing that clean out, doing the investigations, finding those. I mean, does that, what's that number do to, to your mind? I think anybody that went and saw Ground Zero after the event understood the magnitude of it. Right. You, which was incredible. Yeah, I got to go. Therefore, the cleanup. Yeah, I can see that being. Uh, the it's, case. it's actually worth going if you take a trip up there. Oh. Now it's when it's complete, but. I got a chance to Obviously go up there. Now it's and all cleaned up, right, 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 and go so. down into the in there, and actually go up into. Man, New York's so great. It's awesome. They, they let me go in and sign the new tower and the wall before they put the walls up. That's cool. Like one of the high floors, put some stuff in there. To remember, man, that's super cool. It man. was. I what I love when I I went when the construction was underway, and then I went again when it was finished, and I went through the museum. And my favorite part of that was. You know, favorite. It's tough, you know, to balance. But no, again, I, we we talk about you know when tragedy happens, we're inspired to to 
to do more to serve at a higher level. But I remember getting through the end of it and at at the end seeing Rob's shirt up in there, man, and being all fired up, you know. Man, it's amazing how swift they like we said, when they come together and they start working. I mean, two ninety, there's a highway out here that uh, down the road, but they've been working on that thing for almost two hundred and ninety years, right? <laughs> Towers fell and it came back up. They're still working on that road. <laughs> Southern 95 Ooh. in South Florida. I don't know why they built one tower. No. Is, do you know? No, I don't know. Oh, I, I, why'd they build one tower? I always thought they should have built three. Been like, well, you knocked down two. <laughs> Fuck you. Here's three. <laughs> why'd they build one? I'm serious. I think they should have built three. I don't know. I That's think for question, structural though. purposes and size, they because they wanted it to make the tallest building besides the Burj, and, and so the, the surrounding areas. Yeah, and you have limited capacity for real estate because they weren't. They they took you know. There's a huge area that became the the memorial. So yeah, ground zero. Losing that, they only had real estate for the one. That makes. I more think sense. a third building would have been a cool memorial. Oh, I do too. It's made a solid a rock. Hole in the ground. <laughs> I knocked this one down. I don't know. That memorial is pretty epic, though. Mm-hmm. I love the water and all that. Anyway, so when you look at Bernie's career, and even even you know, I mean, his post work with, I mean, when I had dinner with him, he was talking about working with Bremer and Iraq, right? And he was <laughs> going over there and. And I, I brought up a couple names of buddies that were running close protection for Brown. He's like, yeah, I know that guy and all these other mm. dudes. And he's like, yeah, I know him. I know him. And he goes, yeah, man, it was the Wild Wild West. And he go, and I go, did you ever imagine from being a, a cop on the beat to where you're in a foreign country helping with the, the war on terror? And he goes, he goes, David, never in my wildest dreams. I'm just a, I'm just a kid from New Jersey, man. And and even even to go those are the guys way, that wind up being the greatest at their deal, right? And nothing against the the line that people walk. And it's been laid for you, you know. The Ivy League's going to go into those yeah. positions. When you get the kid from the streets rolled up in there with all with everybody else, it makes it makes for a dynamic team. And I think that's the point he was making, which is the main takeaway for our audience. And if you're listening to this again, man, thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. Thank you for being a loyal listener to the Team Never Quit podcast. We could not do this without you guys. I know people say it, but hell, it's the truth with us. We we value each and every single one of you. Uh, we love the comments you make on social media. We pay attention to them. The stories you write in and tell your Never Quit stories are amazing to us. We just, man, thank you so much. If this is your first time listening... Boy, it's been a doozy to start out. Hopefully, you know, we're, we're grateful to have you. Go out and check out all the other shows, man. You will dig every one of them. Uh, they each have valuable lessons. And so for me, with Bernie, it was really to, to pivot off what you just said, Marcus. It's the sense that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how... Much you've been kicked in the teeth. I mean, imagine knowing your mother was beaten to death by the time you were nine, right? It, it, no matter what you've seen or what you've gone through in your life, if you work hard, you're determined, you surround yourself with good people that are motivated to, that have great common sense. That's what I love about Bernie and, and, and what he was telling us today. If you have great common sense 
and you do the right things, man, you too can succeed. You can, you can persevere. You can grind it out and you can adhere to the never quit mindset, which will ultimately set you up for success in your life. All right. Let's do a reader story. All right. That's what I think we should do. Cool. This is from Officer Carey. Hi, guys. It's taken me a really long time to write this. I don't really consider my story a special one. I haven't survived can- cancer or gone to war and survive atrocities such as, a wonder- such as our wonderful veterans, but I have an incredible friend who believes I have a story to share. So maybe this will help my PTS healing. I leave the D off, by the way, because it's not a disorder, but a lifelong fight to live normal. So here goes my story. I grew up in a nice, quote, normal family in a nice, quote, normal Midwestern town. My wonderful parents are still married and professionally successful. I was a good daughter growing up, got decent grades, played soccer, and stayed out of trouble. However, my senior year of high school, I was brutally sexually assaulted by my boyfriend and at the time was dropped off at home bruised and beaten. I hid the innocent incident from my parents and did not reveal it to them to them what happened until several years later when I started therapy. I managed to graduate from high school and go on to college, but it was definitely a struggle because all I wanted to do was isolate myself from the memories and flashbacks. I graduated from college with my bachelor's degree in law enforcement. I immediately tested and got onto the state police in the state I grew up in. I was even, quote, lucky enough to work in the area I grew up. I spent several years on the road in patrol, and nine years ago, I finally assigned to investigations. For the past 21 years, I've been protecting and serving the citizens of the state where I was born and raised. What no one knows or knew was, for all these years, after I finally fall asleep at night, I have severe nightmares. I relive the sexual assault. I see all the dead bodies I've investigated over the years. I see all the babies I couldn't save and all the victims I couldn't help. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love what I do. I wouldn't give up my worst day at work for my neighbor's best day. But I get up every morning to, a, to do a job that no one wants to do. And my brothers, sisters, and I get degraded for it. I have seven years left before retirement, and I plan on giving back in some way to wounded warriors, both vets and first responders, in some way. Seven more years of never quitting. Seven more years of proving that I belong in this career as a female. Seven more years of providing 90% of police officers, proving that 90% of police officers are great officers. Seven more years of helping every person I possibly can. Thank you for reading my story. Carrie, listen, bravo Zulu to you. Thank you so much. What you are is a testament to not only women and police officers, but you're a testament to the human race. We're going through what you've gone through. 
staying strong, working through it, and then continuing to serve others so that they might feel protected against the atrocities of the human condition, I commend you. It's an honor and a blessing to be able to read your story on with us, and we commend you across the board. Keep it up, and hopefully when your seven years is up, you'll find something else that'll give you purpose in life where you can continue serving others. I'm sorry that happened to you, Um, but what it did is it unlocked that warrior in you. You became a police officer, and I mean, it it, it stuck with you, and it's one of those deals where all the bad situations I've been in, I turned it into fuel, right? It it reminded, it's one of them deals where it lets me know how far down I can go and what could happen, and then it provides that fuel that pushes you. And somebody asked me a while back if warriors were born or if they're made. And I, I think they're all, we're all born warriors, but it takes something in your life to peel back Very that great. one piece to, to, to turn it out. And you're not weaker for what happened to you. That, that mutt, dude, he, you know, he took advantage of something that he didn't, which he'll pay for later. I wish ladies would just take the reins off of us when, when guys <laughs> like that. I mean, if they just good, good on all the ladies out there who are bringing all these idiots out who have been uh, affecting them over the Amen. years, man, because you got guys like that. On the other end, you got guys like us. And we, we, you know, we, we love y'all and want y'all to have the, the best life ever. When something like that happens, y'all just pisses us off to no Boy, end, think, man. Man, I think about my two little girls and it scares the hell uh, out of me, dude. That's why they're going to be bad ass. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most daddies shield their daughters. So Alex going to be a ninja, dude. Teach her every pickup line, everything. Totally. You be ready. Well, listen, I just want to say thank you to, you know, Bernie, for coming on. We know you were slammed today, bud. Thank you so much for sharing your story and telling us about 9-11 and how critical that day was to stay in the fight and for you and your life staying in the fight through all your highs and lows and to get your second chance in life. I want to thank Officer Carey for writing in. Thank you so much. I want to thank the fans, man. I want to thank all you out there that are listening on a regular basis, we we could not or would not do this had it not been for all you guys. And and your stories that you're writing in, the never quit stories that you're writing in, that we're, that we're reading and we're posting up, man, they're just phenomenal. We can't, we can't thank you enough for opening up your souls to us and sharing that with us. It just means the world. I want to thank my two girls, my, my parents, my family. And most importantly, I want to thank you, Jens Wizard. Thank you, brother. Marcus, mm. thank you, man. C- couldn't yeah. do this without you guys. Love you. And thank God. Uh, Mr. Kirk, thanks for coming on and doing everything that you do, man. You had a, a great life. It was an honor to have you on here. And Officer Kerry, thank you for writing in and telling us that story. Here's the way I look at that. What happened to you back in the day? That woman that that happened to doesn't exist anymore, right? The woman that you are now is the one that exists. And that guy couldn't do that to you now. So to dwell on, yeah, we, we get those thoughts in our head from way back in the day, but basically you're worrying about a person that doesn't really even exist anymore. You need to worry about the person that you are now and all your accomplishments. That's what makes you strong. That's what makes you the warrior that you are, that you push through that. And those adversities that we hit at, at the bottom that had to transition us into who we are is something you shouldn't be ashamed of. All right, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. 
it, it was a horrible situation, and that and those kind of things should never happen to a woman. But it definitely transformed you into to what you are now, which is an amazing, powerful woman with strength that that coward couldn't even come near. So thank you for walking that line and standing behind that badge and, and doing all that you do and and uh, keep fighting. Seven more years is gonna go by like you couldn't even believe. So thank y'all. Thanks to everybody for bringing us back on here and <laughs> letting us do. I can't believe we get to do this every day, right? And I'm out. Out. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.